Welcome to Heal. On today's episode, author, speaker, and trainer Karen Curry Parker and I dive deep into the real causes of burnout. Karen Curry Parker is one of the world's leading experts on using quantum human design, the power of archetypes, and personal narrative to activate peak performance potential. She's developed a system that explores the relationship between quantum physics and human design, a cross-cultural personality assessment system that synthesizes ancient and modern archetypes to enhance people's capacity. Karen is currently working on her PhD in integrative health and exploring the impact of personal narrative and language on gene regulation and function. She's a multiple best-selling author and has written more than 17 books. A woman after my own heart, Karen knows that behind the diagnosis of adrenal imbalance and exhaustion is a world of pre-existing mental and emotional stressors and habits that are begging for our attention to realign our life with our purpose, our passion, and who we really are. Join us in the conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. This is the best ever. When I saw that it was going to be you, Karen, that I got to talk to today, I got really excited. It made my whole day. So thank you so much for being here and being with us on Heal. My pleasure. And I'm excited to to continue our conversations. I know. Well, I this is so good. So I have Karen Curry Parker here today with us on Heal and a conversation we have had a little bit of dialogue around in this podcast last two and a half years has been burnout. We've done a couple other episodes that have pointed particularly to physician burnout and what happens in the medical system. And it was one of my most popular episodes because people I think are really dealing with this. And what I love about the chance of what we get to talk about today is that how much burnout applies to just about everybody. And mm-hmm. I still have questions like, how do you define it? What is burnout? What does that really mean? Because I think it's also started to been, be a little bit like, oh, yeah, whatever. Everybody's got burnout. And that becomes this like we then discredit it instead mm-hmm. of actually deal with it. Mm-hmm. And what is what is that? And then we've got, you know, the great what are they calling it? Not the great reservation. The great resignation. Resignation, or, or right? The quiet quitting epidemic. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. what that, how that all relates, right? Of like what people are saying no to and they're not interested in and on all of it. So I think this is just also very interesting timing. So I'm talking to my clients and we're at the end of the summer and the beginning of the fall and people, you know, kids have gone back to school and there's this like everything's ramping up mm-hmm. in a way that hasn't. I don't know what you're seeing, but I feel like there's something distinct right now that we haven't dealt with in the last two years because the way the pandemic had continued to keep the brakes on. And it, I know for me, I even let that be a bit of an excuse of like, well, I really shouldn't be up to that much right now. And I feel like that's shifted. And I'm even noticing this pull for me to go, quote, back to the way things were. And my body and my brain are like, no, they're not interested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So no. Where should we start? So, you know, I, I would say we'll start first with, you're absolutely right. I think it's an epidemic and it's an epidemic that I think is grossly unmeasured yeah. and, and grossly misdefined. If that's, if that's a word. Yeah. So it's defined misdiagnosed. <laughs> misdiagnosed. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, we think really, if you think of the definition, if you go to the formal definition of burnout, it's basically 
you know, a, a physical exhaustion that happens as a result of being overworked and underpaid. The World Health Organization has literally recognized this as a medical diagnosis, but it's strictly related to work. And while I'm not saying that there are things that happen at work that can burn you out, I think that if we look at work as the source of burnout, we're totally missing the boat. Mm -hmm. Getting a better job does not often heal burnout. In fact, you know, you just keep going along the same thing. And so we're having the wrong conversation, first of all, about burnout. And, and, you know, I think we misdiagnose it because we, we think the symptoms of burnout are adrenal fatigue and exhaustion, but we don't recognize that those symptoms show up in different ways way before we hit, you know, crash and burn with adrenals. That if you're yeah. procrastinating, if you're avoiding, you know, if you come home and you're not making good dinner choices and you're hitting Grubhub or Insta Instacart or whatever, you know, because it's going to yeah. come to the door in styrofoam because you're too tired to make food. If you're not moving the body, if you're not, if you're checked out in your partnership or checked out with your kids, if you're numbing and avoiding and, you know, doing browser blackout or God forbid, man, those, those Instagram, TikTok stuff, it's like, oh my gosh, psychotic yeah. hole, right? You know, all of those are symptoms of burnout. You and- know, and in naturopathic medicine, we see, you know, so many people were starting to actually recognize even behind what we've called adrenal fatigue for a long time. They've now updated it to a more medically accurate, but more of a mouthful, which is hypopituitary thalamic adrenal axis dysfunction. It's all this, (laughs) right? Which is like everything (laughs) in your head and then down into your adrenals. Right. And, and, but even beyond that, it's like, we've even been noticing as physicians, we treat people and treat people and treat people. And it's like, well, there's something even behind that. So now polyvagal theory, the relationship between the vagus nerve and the gut, the relationship between our body's interpretation of stress and our experience of stress, which are different from each other. Your body may think it's under stress and respond accordingly, even if you have no mental experience of it. And these symptoms can present themselves as a form of self-medicating with that, like looking for the dopamine hits, Mm -hmm. which social media does and certain kinds of scrolling do and certain types of behaviors that we think of as numbing. And I think sometimes numbing is even the wrong word because actually some of them are stimulating, but they stimulate in a way that we get from technology versus from our families, facial. I mean, I've actually been, and I don't know where this fits in for you. This is something that's come up for me recently is I had chronic fatigue syndrome, viral based two years ago, went through a year, worked on that, but there's been these other pieces. And one of the things I've noticed is even though I've had my practice virtual with seeing people on video for 10 years, I've never looked at my computer screen as much as I have in the last 18 months. Yep. And I was just reading articles about Zoom burnout and that if you think about the way that the human brain is used to doing facial processing and Mm -hmm. emotional cues from body language, even energy you would feel if you're sitting around a boardroom with 10 people, our evolution of our nervous system is used to being able to know, am I safe or am I not safe with those 10 people in person? Mm -hmm. We actually use an entirely different set of skills, if you will, and brain responses to manage when you have 10 people looking straight at you, there's direct eye contact, there's people facing you, which is a more aggressive stance than if they're sitting next to you. We never actually would have to process looking at 10 faces or 20 or 30 or 40 Mm -hmm. at the same time. And then you have all the people who 
they're not paying attention on camera. They're not making eye contact. They're looking away. And our brain interprets those as a person disinterested in us. Mm -hmm. And that's a stress, even though we know they're just answering an email or processing something or whatever else they're doing. And that that alone, they are saying that that accounts for a whole level of increased in mental fatigue and exhaustion. And that's just one way our lives have changed. Totally, totally. Yes to all of the above. And, And I would even add, you know, in the beginning of my nursing research career, we talked about the importance of physical touch Mm. and and serotonin levels and, you know, people need to be touched for optimal neurological development. I mean, we know when we don't- Adults as well as infants. Adults as well as infants. (laughs) Children need 46 positive contacts a day. Adults need 14 hugs a day, literally. Really? Yeah, for optimal serotonin production and optimal neurological function. And so, you know, that's the other piece that's missing. Yeah. Like we're, we're not, you know, we need that physical contact. It's important. Yeah. And, and that's still, I think, I mean, it's circumstantial and it's sort of strange. It's been a strange cycle. And, you know, the, I think the piece that we're missing a lot of times is rooted in trauma mm-hmm. and the definition that we use of trauma. I mean, all the definitions we use are just not quite big enough yet. You know, when we look at the DSMR, we look at the definition of trauma, it's really pretty clear that we're looking at macro macro traumatic events, right? Life-threatening, shocking, violent events. And of course, we cultivate PTSD in response because we get into defense mechanisms and hypervigilance to protect ourselves from experiencing that kind of trauma. Again, what, what we don't look at is that we can experience the exact same physiological response to what I'll call micro traumas, right? So those micro traumas are a culmination of any event, experience, or circumstance where you have in some way, shape, or form internalized the message, it's not okay for me to be who I am, Mm. not okay for me to be how I am. And we all get those messages over and over again, and some of us to greater degrees than others. And really what happens is the body reacts to that over time in exactly the same way that it does to a macro trauma. So we become hypervigilant and hypersensitive. We hide, you know, aspects of ourselves. We fail to be vulnerable. We don't ask for what we want and need. We devalue ourselves. And I really think the self-worth piece is probably the piece that we have to really start exploring on a greater depth because we're terrified of self-worth because we think it's ego and we think it's going to be swagger and we're all going to turn into these swaggering egotistical people when we heal our self-worth, but that's not really true. When we value ourselves, we start to live in integrity. And in the work that I've been doing and and looking at the definition of what does it mean to be in integrity, what we see is that when people live in integrity, they start to make a different set of choices around sustainability. When they value themselves, there's a relationship Mm -hmm. to self-worth and sustainability. Because when you value yourself, you're creating from a place of physical integrity. You take care of the body because you know, oh, I need to rest. Oh, I need to say no. Oh, I need to eat well. I need to drink. I need to move my body around and not be on Zoom all day, right? You know, when we value ourselves, we are in resource integrity. We don't use external resources to measure our value. So we use our money better. We use what we have better. We're not wasting or we're not scrambling to try to 
you know, make up for lost sense of value by gathering more resources and hoarding resources that we don't actually really need. We are, when we are in integrity, we have identity integrity. We ask for what we want and need. We go to the workplace and we say, no, that's not going to work for me. Or we say, I need this change or that change, or we move, we allow ourselves to move into places where we're better seen and better utilizing our gifts and strengths. And if we're not, we leave. And we leave without, you know, we're, we're hopefully able to leave and, and move into circumstances where whatever we create in the workplace is a reflection of our identity and our value. We're in moral integrity when we value ourselves. And, you know, when you are when you are living from a place and a deep understanding of your own enoughness, you don't have to take somebody else's stuff because, you know, you can access your own. Yeah. And we're in energetic integrity. And that means we are committing energy that we can bring to the table that we can bring to our partnerships. We can bring to our children. We're not trying to prove our value by overdoing or, you know, making promises we can't keep or trying to kill ourselves, making promises we're trying really hard to keep because now we've defined our value based on how much we can give or how much yeah. we can commit. Yeah. Yeah. I, and this is God is Karen. This is so awesome. Cause it's, it's a, another set of conversation, slightly different angle of what I see in my practice all the time. People come to me for their physical health. Mm-hmm. The majority of the people I work with are dealing with long-term major chronic illnesses that for them, they're not getting the support or difference being made from the conventional medical community. So they come and they work with me as a naturopath, as an integrative practitioner. And we work on integrity of their food, integrity of their sleep, integrity of how much water they drink, integrity of, you know, putting in these new structures called taking supplements and vitamins and Mm -hmm. working on these physical things. And that I always use the analogy that we're building a house and Mm -hmm. that there's like, this is the foundation. You can't have a good house without a good foundation, but it's not the whole story. Like diet Mm -hmm. is important. And also we got to look at the electrical, the plumbing, the walls, the decoration, the family that lives in the home, like the Mm -hmm. plants on the, like all of it. And so we keep building. And what I see is there's this progression as I've had the privilege to work with people over many years. And we go from this, like what I would call core needs, basic integrity level Mm -hmm. to it starts to expand. And so then after they've done that work, they're like, well, wait a minute. Well, what about how my body's been over the years. We start to look at their past. We look at trauma in relationship to their physical health. We look at their relationships and then it starts mm-hmm. to expand out from there. And then they start asking questions like, well, wait a minute, I'm so rigorous about what I eat. What about all these skincare products? What about mm-hmm. my cleaning products? So then that starts to shift. And what's good for our health tends mostly to be good for the environment. So mm-hmm. it's like next thing you know, there's more environmentally friendly chemicals in the home or the lack of chemicals. They start using white vinegar to clean with and lemon juice. Like, And then we start to see it go out from there. What am I feeding my my kids? What am I feeding my family? What about my pets? And it's like each thing you talked about, those layers of integrity, mm-hmm. what I've noticed is, and it's a little of a chicken or the egg thing, in order for people to heal we have to address these levels of integrity. Mm-hmm. And as we address these levels of integrity, people heal. Yes. It's like, and they're all one thing. And then I absolutely get that. What would this look like at the level of community, at the level of group, at the level of like, you even hear stories about neighborhoods who take on painting the neighborhood, restoring their love of the land, putting in a community garden, and then watching how that impacts disease rates going down in that same community, Mm -hmm. acts of domestic violence decreasing, 
depression and anxiety getting better. And it's like what the thing was they did was plant a community garden because it's it hits on one of those areas of restoration of integrity. Totally. And, and you know, I think when we look at propinquity studies and we start to look at the impact of well-being, which I think to me, well-being is the new metric of value, right? We really have to stop looking at numbers, engaging mm. people's value by numbers and start looking at, okay, how, what's the quality of well-being this person is occupying? And when we look at well-being, we use it as a metric. We know that if you live next door to someone who's really living from a place of well-being, they're, they, they rate themselves as being happy. If your neighbor is happy, even if you don't even see your neighbor, you have a 60% chance, greater chance of being happy yourself. And I think a lot of that, you know, we have, I think we can't discount that, you know, happiness creates a vibe. We'll call mm -hmm. it, we'll, we'll just keep it basic. Happiness yeah. creates a vibe and that vibe is contagious. And yes, absolutely. Yeah. Healing the self creates, you know, the potential for that to be contagious and for that well-being to then be spread to family, to community, to who knows what's next. But, I mean, I really think in a lot of ways, because of that one piece, because of the contagious nature of well-being, that when we can help people use well-being as the metric of value and move into a deep exploration of, well, how do I create greater states of well-being in my life? That that obviously shifts people on a personal level, but it has the potential to shift, I think, the world, really, if we start going, you know, if this pe these people are well in well-being and these people are well-being and these people are well-being and the concentric circles of well-being begin to expand, you know, to quote the late Paul Wellstone, we all do better when we all do better. Yeah. And that's, that's important. Yeah. You know, I, I think the other piece that's, that's essential to look at is, you know, in, through the lens of burnout is we have to also look at sustainability and resilience and what, what qualifies the definition of resilience and sustainability uh, because it's kind of a loosey-goosey term. And then what does that mean to be resilient as a human being? And, and one of the things that I've done in the last few years in my research is to look at how do we define resilience? What are the qualities that people embody when they identify and live in a resilient way, when they're able to you know, use burnout as a catalyst for an expansion and growth into a more resilient state? And you know, when we look at the components of resiliency, we see that resiliency is comprised of a sense of lovability. Mm. So when you feel loved and you are able to give love, then that actually increases your resilience. Resiliency is rooted in a sense of power or the ability to feel like you have some kind of influence over your life and your life circumstances. And a lot of times that can be cleared with shifting personal narrative and again, clearing trauma. Resiliency is rooted in a high sense of self-worth, which we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. Resiliency happens when we know how to work with fear and to and to, to really understand the difference between life-threatening fear versus the fear of losing love or the fear of losing value or the, you know, and that's usually or the fear status. Yeah. And knowing how to leverage that fear, how to really work with it to shift your perspective on it. So it goes from fear to excitement or fear to, oh, okay, what's going on in the body? How do I hear this and work with this and, and really analyze what's my experience here? The other, the other component of resilience is authenticity. How much do you trust that you can show up as yourself without compromise and and how much are you able to ask for what you want and need so i would say authenticity kind of mixed with vulnerability 
Self-trust is another component of resiliency. How much do you trust your own inner knowingness and your own wisdom and even your intuition, even if other people are telling you, no, that's not right. (laughs) Emotional wisdom, knowing how to be deliberate in your response to others instead of reactive is huge because, you know, it's, it's, if you can show up in your relationships in a way that's emotionally wise and not reactive, your, your chances of leveraging support go up exponentially. Decisiveness is another one, knowing exactly how to make decisions, because that's a big piece for a lot of us, because we're oftentimes driven to make decisions in a way that really doesn't work for us. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, vitality is sort of the end result of all of it, just when when we are living in a state where we're cultivating vitality, then we're able to make resilient decisions. But if we're not, you know, if we're burned out, usually what I find is if I drew all those little elements of resiliency in a pyramid, the burnout is the symptom, is the final symptom. It's like the dying gasp of the pyramid being unhealthy. And then underneath all that, we see, you know, courage and lovability really at the base of the pyramid is self-love and 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 yeah. self-worth and then everything else in between. And if if you're in a job or a work position or you feel like you can't be who you are, if you don't trust yourself, if you can't be emotionally wise because you still got stuff you got to clean up, if you don't know how to make decisions, if all that's out of place, it's going to create burnout. Because mm-hmm. what happens is, and going back to trauma models, is basically if we are not living the highest expression of those nine core keys, what happens is we end up putting up a mask, right? We have to hide who we are out in the world. And you know, the analogy that I always think of is if you go to like one of those masquerade parties where you're holding the mask up on the stick, you are not holding that mask up all night. You know, at a certain point, you're either going to have too much champagne and you're going to, you know, <laughs> yep. or your you arm know, gets or, tired, your arm gets yeah. tired. And, you know, even though it's not really heavy, you know, when you're trying to be something you're not, or you're, you're saying yes, when you want to say no, or you're saying no, when you want to say yes, or you feel like you're not safe to ask for what you want and need, and you have to put up a facade. It's exhausting. And it's way more exhausting than I think we we realize. And, you know, when I look at the when I look at the the national in America, the national rates of burnout are 65 percent, 65 percent of people in America report themselves as being burned out. That's a first of all, let's just recognize that's a billion dollar problem in, in the business world. OK, not to mention the human costs. Right. And where that goes into the medical system, because so many of these things lead directly into how people either end up with certain illnesses yep. or how the illnesses get propagated. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, even if you just bring it down to making better nutritional choices, cause you yeah. are sustainable, you know, it, it impacts everything. And I'm going to say, I, I think 65% is not high enough because if I go back and I do research on, okay, so how many people feel traumatized, report themselves as having experienced some kind of trauma in their life that goes up down to 85%. Yeah. And now we're looking at, well, okay, we have 85% of traumatized people, 65% are burned out. There's to me, there's a big discrepancy in the numbers. Well, and that, I mean, I don't have the data, but I would look at how much our culture values what we call as putting on a good face, AKA Mm -hmm. a mask. But what that looks like in a psychological or a medical standpoint is disassociation. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that I'm constantly working on with my clients is they'll come to me. I mean, I can't tell you that this doesn't happen so much anymore. It used to be I, I'd go to a party. People would meet me at a party and they're like, you're a natural what? A who? What kind of doctor are you? <laughs> I'm like naturopathic. 
physician. And they're like, what does that even mean? And I start to tell them, you know, I'm basically a family doctor, primary care doctor who uses all vitamins, minerals, nutrition, homeopathy, instead of drugs and surgery. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you, Karen, the number of times people would say, oh yeah, I'm really healthy. I mean, I had triple bypass surgery last Christmas, but it went really well. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, hold on. Let's take, you know, but that's where our culture Mm-hmm. will say like, that's how we're supposed to talk. That's part of the mask. And so I often am like, I'm not trying to make my clients feel worse than they do, but there's a waking up and telling the truth and actually starting to take stock in the reality of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And this huge disassociation, one, even feeling our body. That's a big piece of a lot of my clients I'm working on with them, even being able to connect to how they feel really Mm -hmm. authentically. And I warn them a little bit that when we start our work together, it'll feel a little bit like it's getting worse before it's getting better because they're waking up to it. They're actually not pretending it's okay when it hasn't been okay. Right. And then we can start to move through it on the other side. And then you have emotional disassociation, which you're looking at one of the queens of that over here. That's mm-hmm. been a major component of my strategy. And it's interesting and, you know, <laughs> really want to take on your life, start a podcast called Heal. That's an inquiry into <laughs> what does it really take to heal <laughs> and watch your life explode. So for the last three years, I've had all these things opening up for me. And some of them were very physical. And some of them now I have been in this exploration of recognizing my own ignorance, ignoring disassociation and unwilling to look behind the curtain to recognize how much trauma I actually have experienced, particularly in the world of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. I used to crack the whole thing up as like, yeah, whatever. I was just that kind of a promiscuous 20 year old. Mm-hmm. And I had this whole conversation about like, well, I was just being detached. But now I've worked with therapists to actually look at like, A, where, why did my brain say that I should be detached in the first place? Where did that come from? Some mm-hmm. childhood experiences. And like what I struggled with was by the book of mm-hmm. the macro trauma definitions, I didn't see my life fitting in that I had been traumatized. So I was like, well, that's not me. It's not like those terrible, horrible, super big, you know, fill in the blank ever happened to me. What hit me was I actually read a book on healing from sexual abuse more for my clients than for myself. Mm -hmm. And I identified with 75% of what was written in that book. And it made me stop and go, my brain responds to life like somebody who's been sexually abused. My Mm -hmm. sexual relationships have a lot of old history that look exactly like this. I'm relating to all of this. Maybe there's, and, and I'd actually look for more of the, what's the medium trauma, the the micro macro, you know, somewhere in (laughs) the middle. And it's been somewhat by redefining and looking. So that disassociation, and I don't know, but when I look at that difference between 65% in burnout and 85% in trauma, one is how many of us have just, I disassociated. I didn't even have it like that even had happened for me. I also can see in some places where Depending on what conversation you're having or who you're talking to, it's either easier to say you're burned out or it's easier to say that I had an experience of trauma, like where where it's even socially acceptable for us to be authentic. Right. And like you said, how many definitions are missing? So it's so important we're having this conversation to start to create a new dialogue. Well, and I also think we have to be really careful when we're talking about human beings to not make formulas. Yeah. Because you could get somebody who just is innately a very sensitive, dialed in, intuitive person 
who can be in a classroom setting where maybe you have a teacher who in a particular year is just having a really bad year and bringing it into the classroom or there's a very interesting mix of kids and the energy itself in the classroom is just very unsettled. And this kid is going to feel that and internalize it as a personal thing. I mean, we start our lives out as children and they don't always they're not able to always rationalize, Hey, you know, the teacher's going through a divorce and she's bringing it to work and she's projecting it onto all of us. And well, I need to not take that personally, you know, we, you know, and, and if you say, okay, you're showing the symptoms of trauma, your body's showing the symptoms of trauma. And this person's like, yeah, but I'm not traumatized. I think we have to, you know, at the risk of being so broadly general, say, Right now, the way in which our life is constructed, there are elements of potential trauma in there. And you know what we bring to the table in terms of how we react to those circumstances is going to be highly individual. And we want, I want to, I always want to encourage practitioners, be really careful yeah. about saying, oh, this kind of trauma creates this kinds of physiological response. Because what if you have the physiological response, but not the defining characteristics? Does that make it wrong? Yeah. You know, I, I think we have to just recognize that people are different. And and I, I honestly think, I don't have any research on this. This is really Karen's opinion. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have a 13-year-old still, I have eight children and a 13-year-old living at home. And I would say all of my kids who are in their 20s and 30s now to have varying degrees of anxiety. And certainly I would say a couple of my kids really had, you know, pretty intense experiences in middle school in particular. You know, I think our kids are showing up with a different filter, if you will. And I think to a certain degree, they feel it more. And I think because they feel it more, they're actually disassociating at a higher level. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really concerned about the this particular generation that's coming up, that the, the ease at which disassociation can happen and the belief system around disempowerment that I'm seeing makes me very concerned about long-term well-being in our, in our culture. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of concerns about long-term well-being from so many different perspectives. (laughs) And it's like, so in that sense, well, there's two things. One is like, I'm going to just be me. God, you're smart. Like, (laughs) I love this conversation and I'm just like, like eating up everything about it. And so I am just for my own curiosity and also for people, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you end up here in this conversation? Well, that's a great question. So I will say I, it's a very long story because I'm old, but I started <laughs> off as a nurse by training and a journalist. And I, I really had a hard time picking one or the other. So I've always been a nurse with a publishing company. <laughs> so, But I started off as a nurse very quickly I, in the beginning of my nursing career, I worked as a nurse for about six months and went, there's no freaking way I can do this. I can't take care of clients the way that I know I need to take care of clients. So I I was really into labor and delivery at that point in my life. So I became a midwife and had my own midwifery practice and did home births way before it was on trend. Shortly after that, I encountered, I learned EFT, the emotional freedom techniques, which is meridian-based acupressure technique. This was in about 2000. And at that time, when we first started using EFT, people were losing their licenses for inappropriate touching. So I thought, well this stuff works so crazy well. I'm just going to let my license lapse because I I can't not do it. I have, I'm here to help people and I can't yeah. follow these rules very well. So I started using EFT and I studied life coaching at, around that same time because it gave me, you know, gave me a path to kind of blend those two. And then 
at that time, I also encountered a, a personality assessment system that was astrologically based called human design. So that was a very disruptive cycle for me because I really, I, I love science. I've always loved science. I, I believe in science big time. I, I am curious and I like peer-reviewed studies and information. I think it's good. So I had to really devolve, devolve my opinion at the time yeah. into using astrology and energy psychology. So it was a big like swallow it That's down. That's a big growth period <laughs> you were in. Yeah. But it was amazing because what I saw anecdotally in the beginning was, well, you know, my results were unparalleled. I, I could go way further with this than I could go with just traditional my you know the, the therapeutic tools that I had in my toolbox and so I studied and and kind of learned and taught and wrote books about all of this and at a certain point I thought you know my client base has changed a lot and what I'm seeing with my clients now is you know they don't want to stop smoking and make more money they're wanting they're they're first of all they're burned out and secondly, they're recognizing that the burnout is a catalyst to something. They, they were asking different questions. And that really kind of got me fascinated and, and really brought me back to looking at astrology. The, the system of astrology that uses is a synthesis of Eastern and Western astrology, the Chinese I Ching, the Hindu chakra system, Judaic Kabbalah. And it's really a blend of ancient and modern archetypes. And yeah. I started to really explore the role of stories and storytelling and how stories could actually shift and change perspectives. And so I began to, I, I took the system and the, the language in traditional human design, which is what I was originally trained in. And I rewrote all the language in the system to make it more empowering and more activating and you know started to use that as a very deliberate storytelling tool so i've been looking in the last few years at two questions number one how do we help people write better stories so that they have a different place to react to life with because when you're yeah. really the story's in the gap between stimulus and response if you if you have control over that story you get to control how you respond to life yep and then underneath that i looked at all of these archetypes and i started to ask the question well what what's going to maximize the expression of these archetypes in it? I really had to go back to basic human development. And I started looking at Eric Erickson and the work of Richard Garrett and started to say, well, you know, really, if we distill all these archetypes down, there's really just nine basic archetypes, you know, lovability, empowerment, value, courage, the ones that I just pointed out earlier. Yeah. Those those core archetypes are really the foundation of well-being. Yeah. And really the foundation of what drives people, what drives a person to consciously choose to make, you know, to make a sustainable, you know, to create a sustainable way of living in every area of their life, whether yeah. it's, yep. you know, supplements or whatever. And, and it's different because if you're creating from that space, rather than if you're, you're saying, okay, I'm going to take these supplements because I want to create well-being. Versus I'm going to take these supplements because I don't want to die of cancer. It's the so distinct. Totally different. Totally. Yeah. So yeah. at the top of all of my treatment plans, when I take my clients through, I actually used to, you know, what I got trained in is like 60 minute medical assessment, which was long for how many, mm -hmm. you know, but for naturopaths. And then you just, here's the treatment, here are the answers, da, 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 da. Like, okay, take this and go. We'll see you in three months. That never worked for me. And I started seeing people monthly 
And then I started doing a lot of my own personal growth and training in transformational education and worked with a company in coaching and started to explore life coaching for myself. So now I'm in the soup looking at my clients like, I got to bring this over here. (laughs) And now I've like 15 years later, I spend three sessions just working through the assessment process before we even get to starting to lay out the actions, right? Mm -hmm. And the very first thing at the top of my treatment plan is health exists in the body, the degree to which you're willing to love yourself Mm -hmm. and -hmm. disease exists in the body to the degree to which you resist love, Mm -hmm. which is the nice way of saying it. Right. Yeah. It <laughs> and, <is>. um, <laughs> and we could fill in the gaps of like, you know, self-harm and violence against the self, which is much mental and the conversations, the stories we dwell in as anything. And mm-hmm. without that context, and it's like, we talk about adding health versus removing disease. Mm-hmm. You know, you add light to a dark room. You can't suck the darkness out. There is no thing there to suck out. You have to add light. So I'm always looking at it from there. And everything that we're doing is in the context of adding health, adding vitality, adding love, taking care of ourselves, learning to prioritize ourselves in a different way, like which goes back to the self-love, Mm self-worth, self-value conversations. And so I'm listening to this going all the, I can see these pieces connecting in. And then I also realize where I haven't as formally and directly, I speak to some of it, but not all of it. And like, you know, and then there's that place of, I want to teach my clients everything all at once, which doesn't work. (laughs) And so like, I love that your work exists because of the way it comes at from that angle. And then I tend to focus more on the physical Mm -hmm. diet supplements, but all the time people come to me, why am I taking all of these? What is this for? God, this seems like so many pills. It takes me an hour a day to work (laughs) on my health. And I'm like, Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. At least, at least an hour a day to take care of ourselves. That's actually Mm -hmm. kind of on the low end, but you know, (laughs) those contexts of coming from, from love and self-worth and value and courage and all of those points, it, it does start to shift it. Mm -hmm. So in your work now, like, Mm -hmm. what are you predominantly doing? Do you work with one-on-one clients? Are you teaching or is it mostly speaking and educating at this point? I'm mostly speaking and educating at this point. I mean, We do run out of our business. We run sliding scale group events where we work on these nine core resiliency keys using EFT in an integrated approach. I'm really sort of, you know, I'm a curious person. So I'm always adding things to explore. Is this going to make it better? Is this going to make it better? So we have in the last couple of years added flower essences Mm-hmm. to the work that we do because the way I, and there's, there's a big, there, I'm still deep in the exploration phase around that because to me, it feels like a flower essence and adding any kind of subtle body therapy to it. It's almost like a, an energetic poultice is probably the way I would say it. it's like, it holds the changes in place until you can get the body and the mind sort of reintegrated. So yeah. I like to, I like to use those a lot. So I'm right now really exploring those and, and still working on my PhD dissertation where I'm exploring the relationship between archetypes and gene regulation, because when mm. people identify with a narrative that embodies well-being, it, it shifts immunity. It, it, up, up, it, up, it upregulates and it, and totally. it balance. And, and this is where like, I haven't fully stepped across. I mean, I have had the thoughts, how long do I want to keep my medical license? It's, mm-hmm. it's not something I'm doing anything about, but I have thought about it. Mm-hmm. And cause there is a box I'm in. Right. 
And there's expectations inside that box. Now, as a naturopath, we have a broader scope of practice to work inside of counseling and life changes than I would as a conventional doctor. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, I throw a lot of supplements at my clients. We do some major, major physical stuff. And then there's this part of me that's like, how could I make this more simple and move faster? Mm. And I just keep coming up against these, I summarize it as energetic components, but it's getting Mm. into our relationship to ourselves, who we see ourselves as, others, who do we see others as, a threat, resources, loved ones, you know, just a pain in the butt, things we have to deal with, Mm -hmm. you know? And then the world, what's our occurring of the world? How does the world occur for us? And those three questions pretty much dictate how somebody's going to take care of themselves and what the state of their physical health is going to be. So how do I actually get at accessing those, you know, and, and like, and then sometimes I wonder how much, um, diet and supplements and integrative medicine is like the gateway medicine. (laughs) It gets people across the line. Don't tell, don't tell. Yes, we're doing a liver detox. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. That's totally what we're doing. Also the liver controls boundaries and anger and how you manage your sense of self-worth and courage is actually in the liver among other organs, right? That Chinese medicine component. I, I did a couple years Every elective I could get away with in the Chinese medicine program I took because I was fascinated by the Mm -hmm. way they integrated mind, body, spirit. And I did four years of medical research in my undergraduate or in my medical school in psychoneuroimmunology and the Mm -hmm. study between psychology, neurology, and the body, which we now call it psychoneuroendoimmunochronology. And I'm like, again, <laughs> when you it's all connected. Yeah. <laughs> so right. I, I really get that. And actually those were questions we were bumping up against, which we have been seeing is like in longevity studies, you know, Dr. Mar- Mario Martinez has been a psychiatrist who's now done a lot of work in physical longevity and he studied centrarians Mm-hmm. And he found in his research that 30%-ish of what made it possible for somebody to live to be 100 was actually diet and lifestyle. And right. more like 70%. And what he broke it down into was personal autonomy. The more they had a sense of their own personal autonomy and empowerment, mm-hmm. and then what culture they were in. And if the culture was one that honored and saw value in our wise people, our elderly community, if they were people of honor and value, there was a great, you know, we studied the Okinawans in Japanese culture and we're like, it's the seaweed, it's their plant-based diet. No, they freaking value their elders and they want what they have. And they have a place in society where they have a sense of contribution and making a difference. And that accounted for some of the difference making of why one culture has an average life expectancy of 65 and another culture has an average life expectancy of 92. Right. And when you look back at what the, these people have endured over the span of their lives in terms of trauma. Yeah. I mean, they've gone through horrendous trauma and yet the resiliency, the resiliency is there. And, and one of the, one of the components, I think of the, of the work that, that you're quoting is part of the resiliency was an attitude of optimism. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a piece that again, not trying to like make media bad, but I think that when we are, you know, in a news cycle, that's streaming bad news 24 seven and we lose hope, 
we're not just losing hope, we're losing years off of our life. We're losing immune function Mm -hmm. and making ourselves feel as bad as the nudist is telling us that we should feel. And, you know, just reframing the story to where there's hope can, can be fundamental in healing. Yeah, absolutely. So can we leave people with some things that they might be able to do about this? Totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. So what are some of your, like, we've talked about emotional freedom technique, which is something that people can actually, it's a pretty, I'm sure there's a lot of intricacies into it, but like, I remember going to a short seminar and being able to pick up a fair amount from EFT, you know, in an easy to consume package. It wasn't that, that lengthy of a training. It's, it's pretty easy to learn. You know, I, I think it, I, I think it's a really self-empowered tool to learn. And I certainly I would say there are a lot of good places to learn it. You can teach it to yourself. I'm a big fan of the work of Dr. Dawson Church, who mm-hmm. teaches professionally, but also I think has a lot of really good resources and are pretty easy to find. Even Bruce, Dr. Bruce Lipton has books that he's written yeah. about EFT. Biology, and belief EFT. in EFT. And yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think... This is going to sound really hokey and and I get in trouble with this with my my jaded millennial children all the time but you know one of the things that can actually shift and and make pretty beautiful shifts pretty quickly is finding what works in your life focusing with gratitude on what works and making that a part of a daily practice and actually we know that gratitude can actually bring the heart into a state of coherence and it's it's a practice where you know, if you're a pretty jaded person, you're going to roll your eyeballs and feel like you're faking it for a while. But it's amazing how just very quickly taking stock of, well, what is working? It is really such a foundational piece for innovation and change in life. And so I would say tap, focus on what's working. I'm not going to lie. I am a huge fan of flower essences. I think Me too. They, I've they, been using them in my entire practice. Yeah, they're magical. They, you know, they're not going to fix everything, but they create the openings. Yeah. And, And, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've literally done research and studied the research on homeopathy and the power of homeopathic preparations, which now I giggle because I actually was on Instagram and I saw something that said microdosing herbs and it was (laughs) kicking off of the psychedelic medicine movement, but they were just talking about low dose homeopathic preparations of herbs. And I'm like, we've been doing that for 250 years. It made me laugh. But whatever package we put it in now and, and with flower essences, you know, it combines a couple things. Cause I actually am quite confident that the remedies themselves are making a difference that they are oh, not totally. just, you know, not just placebo and placebo is really powerful by the way, right, right. but, but they actually do, but there's this other component too, which is I have my clients take them four times a day and mm-hmm. there's an intention. And Mm -hmm. we know just stopping four times a day and setting yourself in alignment to an intention, that alone is a powerful practice. So you get to combine multiples of this. And it's like, for me, when I take, and I'm literally, I have six flower essences sitting (laughs) on my shelf over there and I'm looking at them. And it's like, when I take it, I literally remind myself like, oh yeah, this is what I'm at work on. This is what I'm healing. And there's also this place of trust that like, Sometimes when the only work I've done has been psychological or mental, or it's only been in life coaching and like mantras or affirmations, I will notice sometimes I even feel like 
well, I have to do this work. Like, what if I can't get it to move? When I take a flower essence, I'm like, I don't have to do diddly squat. The flower is doing it. And there's something that opens me up to even more possibility Mm -hmm. with that combination. So I think, I mean, I use a lot of homeopathy in my practice. I use a whole system called biotherapeutic drainage Mm -hmm. that's related to some of those same systems that is in part of human design, but from a homeopathic medical standpoint and flower essences have been a part of it. My mentor, Dr. Tom, has been practicing medicine over 45 years. Mm-hmm. He was originally a dentist oh, wow. and actually left dentistry and stepped into naturopathic medicine. And I don't know how many thousands of physicians he's trained over his lifetime. And I have asked him if there was one single thing that you could do for people, what would it be? His answer is flower essences. Yeah. That's literally of all. And this man has done IV therapy, injection therapy, all, all, all the things in natural and functional medicine. And he says if he had one tool to work with, and he's always said that in his 45 years of medicine, predominantly what he finds the biggest area to actually heal chronic illness is you have to work on the mental emotional, which we now have a bigger conversation about mm-hmm. trauma, polyvagal theory, all of the connections to the ACEs study and how we can mm-hmm. see that childhood experiences of trauma is more correlative to morbidity and mortality as we age than Mm -hmm. any other factor. And Mm -hmm. it's also very healable with consciousness and starting to have conversations around that connection. And I think probably when you started in medicine and for sure, even for me, when I started in medicine, there's still this strong, well, there's therapy over here, but then there's physical medicine over here. Yeah. We still haven't been willing to get that, that, that split mind body split was literally made up right invented it it is not scientifically proven at all in fact every step we learn in neurology and immunology we've been discovering your thoughts how you think and your view of life have just as much if not more influence on how your macrophages clean up things in the immune system well where did it start i mean the thing is where did we decide that suddenly the brain wasn't part of the body yeah because because if you're going to call it a mind-body connection and you're going to classify the brain as something separate, well, I mean, the brain is processing thought. That actually leads a whole, us to a whole different wormhole of like, what are the thoughts that the brain is processing? Where do those come from? And then we start to get into a whole different level of understanding. Yes. So, you know, yeah. the, I think we'll continue. I mean, I think we're rapidly continuing to explode the idea. It's now undeniable. It's like the results are too fast. I mean, I've talked about this in other podcasts, but I study flow state, the neurologic Mm -hmm. state of flow and have done work with the Flow Research Institute. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those guys literally are like harnessing the power of thought and possibility and conversation is increasing people's ability to perform 500%. Mm -hmm. It's like the results are so undeniable of like when you have a top performer, how they operate mm-hmm. that it's, it's like, you know, and so my question has always been, well, then where can we apply flow state process to healing and actually have healing speed up what's possible? And not that it's all about everything happening better, bigger, faster. Sometimes we need the slow and the subtle and we work through things of the process we were, I mean, I'm still working on myself and I have been since I was well, 15, <laughs> but you won't stop. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. Let's, let's, I think, I think if we can maybe in this conversation start the, you know, continue to dismantle the idea that there's an end point, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no yeah. end point. Well-being is a continuum and it's expansive and it's variable and it, it'll change with perspective and, and life view. I mean, you know, I recently became a grandmother in the last two years and I have, I have two grandsons, two and one. 
the the shift in my definition of well-being that happened the nanosecond I held my first grandchild and became this grandmother and held what basically feels like infinity in my arms. My definition of well-being shifted like this and my commitment to my personal well-being amplified exponentially because now I got a world to save for these people, right? I mean, it's it's a totally different, you know, you will always, we will always be evolving and growing and expanding on well-being and let's stop measuring things in that old materialistic formulaic way. If I do this, this, and this, then this. And then I'm done. No, right. never. Don't be done. It's too fun. And that's the thing is like, what are we really looking for when we say we're done? Right. You know, like, like <laughs> right. what, what is that? I mean, I'm going to get really blunt. My dad just died a couple months ago and like, he's right. that version of him is done. I don't know what version of him is still going. I have some ideas, mm-hmm. you know? So what is it where we say done? And I do understand and relate deeply when people are in, you know, a strong sense of suffering or their body won't work the way they used to have it, their energy levels, their concentration, the brain, you know, I get that completely, but there's also this, like, I want to be done so I can get on with the rest of my life. Well, what if this is getting on with the rest of your life? It's like all in one thing, you know? Right. And, and I think taking that, you know, just again, in a bigger context of it, we have to, we have to integrate the idea that done isn't always going to be healthy in the way that we define as healthy. It'll be vital. You'll be living your maximum life force through whatever you have, but let's not, let's not, let's not devalue the process Yeah, and let's not devalue the day to day. And, and like we've pointed to earlier about the connection between burnout and sustainability and what there is for us to heal at the level of culture and the world I'm never done because when I've completed what I've completed for myself, all I wanted to do was give it away and contribute to others. And that, you know, be a healthy, happy, good neighbor, you know, in my culture, in my community, in my family, literally in my neighborhood, you know, and, and so that place, like, I don't ever want to be done. I, and I can't, I couldn't be. And and that is actually the ultimate expression of the healing of self-worth, because when you start to embody, oh, wait, hold on, time out. I'm an irreplaceable, vital part of the cosmic plan. The plan is what it is today because I'm in it. And if I'm holding this space well, and I see my value, then, oh my God, you are holding your space and the plan is because of you too and them and them and them. Now, all of a sudden, we're creating globally from a completely different point of view because it's not okay for a child to be starving in the Sudan because- Mm -hmm. Hey, that's part of the cosmic plan. We need to go make sure that's okay, right? Yeah. That that's the ground, you know, it's the cornerstone of peace is Absolutely. healing our value. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I agree completely. <laughs> Do your work, everybody. Do that's your work. right. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. This has just been incredible. We are going to have resources to some of your contact information, the trainings you have, the books that you've published will be available on my website. And so people can connect to that and get connected to any of the things that you may have gotten lit up by in this conversation (laughs) to learn more and heal more about. And Karen, this has just been so on point to what I created heal for is for conversations like this to really be able to push the cutting edge of like, here's where we're going next and Mm -hmm. be willing to say the things that maybe are uncomfortable or unusual or not talked about as much. 
And I just so appreciate you and all the work and research you've put into your lifetime to be one of those beacons for other people. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this work because it is so important. Thank you. Absolutely. Until we get to do it again. Awesome. Thank you to today's guest, Karen Curry Parker, for her heart and dedication. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time.